the National Archives podcast series, Blindness in Victorian Britain, A History of Advocacy, presented by Heather Tilly. This talk was recorded on the 3rd of December 2015 at the National Archives, Kew. So just a little bit about myself. Um, I'm a research fellow at Birkbeck, um, University of London, and I work um, in a literature department there. Um, my research speci specialism is 19th century literature, culture um, and disability studies. And for some time I've been working largely on the history of, of visual impairment, which my talk today relates to. I'm publishing a book on that, um, which will hopefully be coming out um, within the next year. And I've also curated some exhibitions as well relating to this history. And I think that's um, what sparked Vicky's interest um, in the topic and why I've been invited to come and speak here today. Okay, so I want to begin my talk with this image of a blind penny track seller etched by the antiquarian and draftsman John Thomas Smith in 1815. Now, as I was preparing my talk, I realised I could probably actually spend 40 minutes talking about Smith's wider project um, alone from which this etching is taken. Um, it's a striking documentary record of disability and poverty in post-Napoleonic War London. Um, it's two books comprising about 50 portraits and biographies of disabled beggars and itinerant salesmen. These figures were largely troubling to Smith and other middle-class observers as they blurred the lines of legitimate charitable giving and indeed the question of who the deserving disabled might actually be. So in the accompanying text, Smith repeatedly notes his anxiety that they're duping almsgivers. Um, and we might think here how history repeats itself. However, I want to focus... Um, in my introductory um, section on the ways in which Smith's image captures a particularly important anxiety in relation to blind people and which recurs in some of the other depictions of blind people that Smith published. So here I'm just going to quickly show two other slides of blind beggars by Smith from the same time um, and who are also depicted bearing with written placards. Um, the one on the right reads, Pray Pity the, Bl um, the Blind. So moving back to, to the slide showing the, the penny tract seller. Smith's portrait evokes a much longer visual culture of the blind beggar, who, since medieval times, had been a subject of interest to artists as a Roman itinerant figure. Such individuals were frequently depicted wearing tattered clothing and bearing a visible marker of blindness in the form of a cane or a guide dog. But here it's the use of the written word, in the form of the placard worn around his neck, that takes on new and important meanings. So the placard, in a way, indicates how wealth potential is associated newly with literacy, in a way that raises particular problems for this blind man. His income derives from the sale of printed tracts, but yet he can't either read the tracts or indeed the advert that he wears. So rather like the famous blind beggar in William Wordsworth's poem, The Prelude, which was drafted in the early 1800s, and who also bears a label which seemed of the utmost we can know, this man's story, and indeed his status as, in, as a subject of an engraving in a visual medium, is something that he problematically, as a blind person, has no direct access to. So the worry that's inscribed here in Smith's portrait about this man's status and his relationship to literacy is the starting point for my talk. In the time that I have available, I want to introduce you to some of the important developments towards literacy that were made in the Victorian era through the development of raised print formats. So embossed literature had been introduced in Britain in 1827, but it had been marked by widespread competition and controversy. 
Whilst Braille, the raised print script mostly in use by blind and visually impaired people today, had been invented in Paris in the 1830s and was in use there from the 1850s, it wasn't actually until the 1870s that it began to be promoted more extensively in Britain. And the issue of literacy was framed by many 19th century commentators, both sighted and visually impaired, as one of the central issues concerning the moral and economic well-being of blind people in the period, and I hope that that will become clear as my talk progresses. So the efforts to adopt and promote a universal race script contributed significantly to the establishment of what would become the National Institute of the Blind, as well as the Royal Commission on Blindness in the 1880s, which led to more formal state provision of welfare in the 20th century by making local authorities cover the cost of teaching um, blind children. But I also want to discuss and point out how these developments were marked by tension, instigated as they were initially by sighted people who frequently made assumptions about what they felt would be best for the blind people they cared for. So as the Victorian era progresses, we see a split open up between practices advocated for blind people by the sighted versus increasing attempts for blind people to take control over issues that directly concern them and who felt that their own interests had been in some ways damaged. What emerged in Britain was a sometimes radical and increasingly organised movement of blind people, including Bessie Gilbert, William Hanks Levy and Thomas Armitage, who I'll speak about today. So we may think of advocacy um, and a particularly kind of important issue when we think about UK Disability History Month. We might think of advocacy, or perhaps properly self-advocacy, the act of speaking for oneself, as being a 20th century phenomenon in relation to disability issues. But I hope that my talk will actually highlight that it has some really compelling antecedents at a much earlier point in history. So before the development of embossed literature, people who were born blind or who had acquired sight loss had used a variety of means to engage with the written word and to record their own thoughts and ideas. And this was mainly through the use of assistants who would act as scribes or read text aloud to them, but also some more direct methods, such as finger and string alphabets and the use of raised wooden letters. Towards the end of the 18th century, a Frenchman called Valentin Aoui was, like Smith, concerned that blind people might be reliant on forms of begging. However, Aoui's response was rather more proactive. Identifying the limitations that a lack of liter literacy imposed on this group, given its increasing cultural importance, he developed a method for printing raised letters on paper. And in this, and his interest in this issue, he was certainly influenced by a more widespread interest in sensory perception that was also flourishing in philosophy and psychology as well. So we have got these other contextual factors kind of shaping these experiments. Howie began to teach some poor blind children how to read using their fingers, and he founded the Institute for Blind Youth in Paris in 1785, kind of recognised as one of the first proper schools, focus schools for blind um, people in, in Europe. And here I'm showing a frontispiece image from a book that was printed in 1817 by the Institute. Actually, it was some time after Howie had left. It shows two young blind students seated at a desk, engaged in reading and writing embossed scripts. So the girl on the left-hand side sits in front of a large frame and she's imprinting embossed letters from a box which is to her left. And a boy to the right is reading a book with his hands. So just to stress that Aoi's alphabet marked the first systematised embossing method for blind people in Europe. Because of the wars with France, it took about 40 years for developments to reach Britain when a Scottish publisher, James Gall, who'd recently visited Paris in the school there, decided to experiment with his own raised script. So he created an alphabet that was, like Howie's, based on Roman letters, what I'll refer to as the visual alphabet, 
um, for the remainder of the talk. So his alphabet converted the curved edges of Roman letters into angular shapes, um, and he argued that this would achieve a greater extent of tangible surface than the Parisian versions he'd seen. And in later developments, he also fretted the letters as well. But crucially, his books, um, both of his systems, were still visible to the eye. So that's a point that I, I'll just stress there. And so here on this slide, I'm showing um, two images. The first um, on the left is a book embossed in ghoul type. And alongside this is a pen illustration of a man in an early 19th century dress leaning over a wooden frame on a desk. And he's also placing pins into the frame. This device is a typhlograph, and it was something that Gaul had invented for people to emboss their own text with. So if embossing experiments in France had kind of sprung from a concern to equip blind people with skills to gain them more employment, in Britain, experiments were equally driven by religious beliefs and the desire that blind people should be able to read the word of God directly. And there was really a kind of discernible anxiety amongst educators and philanthropists in the many kind of reports and pamphlets that they printed on this issue that they were worried that either blindness might give rise to or indeed be caused by immoral behaviour. So they were felt to be a group kind of in particular need to receive the word of God. And if you, you might not be able to make it out entirely clearly here, but actually the page from Gaul's book that I'm showing um, kind of gives us an inkling of this. Um, it's supposedly a lesson primer for those who are first getting to grips with the language. So it kind of repeats words and, and phrases to give people some practice with the shapes. But it goes from a list of kind of simple propositions such as go on, go up, um, towards kind of rather more fire and brimstone language. It's um, you sin, we sin, they sin. And this is kind of a recurrent theme if you research these materials. Um, they're very kind of gripped by spiritual concerns. Um, indeed, the embossed books that I brought along today, both of them are Bibles, um, and most of the early embossed books were Bibles. That was how people um, funded them, was by appealing to philanthropists to give money to be able to print a copy of the Bible for the blind. So that was how many techn technological innovations were kind of actually first fueled. So one of the books that I brought along from the RNIB's collection um, is an example of Alston type, a script that had been invented by John Alston, who was the sighted director of the Glasgow Asylum for the Blind, and which was introduced in 1836. And this was also based on the visual alphabet. So do have a look at this a bit more closely. It used capital letters with a sans serif font, so it removed the kind of the strokes and flourishes that usually embellished letter characters. Um, and this was um, Alston's concession to making it more legible to the finger. So Alston was one of the most popular early raised scripts. John Alston had won a government grant of £400 and a host of subscribers to aid its development in the 1830s. And his printing press in Glasgow built up a comparatively large book of list of book titles, which, although religious, mainly religious, also contained some attempts at natural history and biography. And here the image that I'm showing on the PowerPoint is from a book of astronomy, um, and I think this diagram is also reproduced in the, um, in the tactile booklet as well. But interestingly, this book also really still privileged vision because it frequently instructed the reader to kind of take a telescope and use it to enhance their vision by looking up at the sky. So it's still assuming a sighted reader, which is quite interesting. Um, and actually, Alston, in his own writings um, about his printing developments, um, kind of consistently doubted the, the fact that the finger might actually be an equal substitute for the eye. So there's this kind of inherent um, denigration, in a way, of, of blind people's capacity to actually learn reading as effectively as, as sighted people. So the alphabets of Owie, Gaul, and Alston um, were all based on the seeing alphabet. They all 
um, all of these systems printed full word strings without contractions and repeated similar shaped strokes with only certain concessions made to the finger, so removing the serifs in Austin's and making round shapes more angular in Gaul. This made letter, the letter characters blurry to the finger um, and it also required more con concentration for people because they had to kind of follow each placement of each character and try to remember the sequence to then be able to establish the correct, correct word. And these complaints were actually levelled against these systems kind of at, at the time. Inventors and supporters of these systems, such as John Alston and the educationist Charles Baker, argued that it would be a great boon to blind people to use a system that was assimilated to the alphabet of the seeing, because there would be more sighted teachers to guide them. And such a script would also perhaps be good for those who'd lost their sight but retained memory of the visual alphabet. And also perhaps it would give people some awareness of the common alphabet. So these were the, the arguments they put forward in, in favour of it. I'll talk a little bit more um, about some of the more prejudicial reasons why early educators were, were reluctant to lose visual legibility. But I just want to kind of say that even these seemingly well-meaning arguments mistakenly turned on an, an equivalency between sight and touch. Um, so they assumed that touch could be made to somehow mimic the processes of sight without actually considering what the sensory differences were between the two. So even though they may have been seemingly progressive um, intentions underpinning these technologies, they were drastically compromised and reduced by an inability to actually imagine the needs and wants of the people they were supposed to serve. Yet actually, quite early on, alternatives had been put forward to using the visual alphabet. So just five years after Gaul printed the first embossed books in Edinburgh, a competition was held in the same city by the Royal Society of the Arts to find the best embossed system. And around 20 examples were submitted to this, and most of them used some kind of symbolic system that had actually made adaptations to the alphabet. Um, so by replacing letters or words with shortened symbols or incorporating contractions. And these scripts were called arbitrary, but perhaps unsurprisingly, it was actually a script based on the seeing alphabet, which took home the prize. So even up until the 1850s, writers for Charles Dickens's popular journal Household Words, including the author Harriet Martineau, argued in several articles published on the topic that there was no doubt that an alphabet that could be read by persons possessing ordinary eyesight would be best endorsing the view that, despite extensive debate, blind people should be encouraged to conform to sighted people's reading practices. Okay, so now um, I want to introduce you to some of the arbitrary scripts um, that were circulating and beginning to, to take some effect, before turning in the last half of the talk to the ways in which blind and partially sighted people became more actively involved in debates and discussions. So on the PowerPoint, I'm showing a code to Lucas's embossed system, Thomas Lucas um, was a shorthand teacher, and when he became aware of experiments in creating tactile alphabets for blind people, he felt that a system based on shorthand principles might be effective. So working with the Bristol Society for Blind People, he introduced his embossed system in the 1830s, when he was fairly elderly. He was in his early 70s at the time, and he actually he died soon after. Soon after, the London Society for Teaching the Blind to Read, which is now the Royal London Society for Blind People, was formed to teach and promote it. Um, and William Hanks Levy, who I'm going to return to, um, also worked as a teacher for this society. So Lucas's system consisted of 12 simple signs, including circles, straight lines, and dots. And it also employed contracted forms. And by this, Lucas hoped that actually the system, not only would it be easier to read by touch, but it might also have the added benefit of making books cheaper because they would be 
kind of less material to print. So that was one of Lucas's aims for his system. And it did flourish briefly. Um, it was used by institutions in London, Bristol and beyond. So the Birmingham Asylum for the Blind was um, teaching students to read in Lucas's system. And just to alert you, the, the book that I brought along in Lucas type from the RNIB's collection um, has an inscription at the front with the name Emma Mollard. I've been able to trace, um, the RNIB collection has other examples of Lucas type that are inscribed with Emma Mollard's name, published between the 1850s and 70s. Um, and I've been able to trace Emma Mollard to the Birmingham um, Asylum, so it's kind of evidence of their kind of, their continued use of that system um, for a good couple of decades. Okay, and this is um, a, a slide of a, a code to an embossed alphabet by a man called James Frere, who'd been associated with charitable home teaching institutions in London and Liverpool. His writing system was maybe a little bit more wacky. It was based on phonetic principles, and he called it a scientific representation of speech. So the alphabet consisted of a character for each of the simple sounds that he'd um, identified. Um, and we've got the, the code of the system here. It was slightly complicated because students would have to, there were kind of memory techniques that they would have to, to use to associate with each sound, but they were visual, so they would have to kind of imagine like a V veers upwards and then kind of translate it back to, to the touch. So it was, it was used by some institutions, but it was kind of felt to be a little bit too complex to ever kind of really take hold. So before we move on to look at some of the blind campaigners, um, I'm just going to pause and um, show you an image that I think kind of demonstrates the ways in which blind, pe blind people's literacy really caught and captured a wider kind of public imagination. Um, and perhaps to kind of tease out some of the stereotypes or, or kind of prejudices that might have been kind of inherent in that interest and scrutiny. So this print was engraved after a painting by George Smith, which had been exhibited at the Royal Academy in 1865. And it was published by the Art Union of London as a gift to their subscribers in 1871. And it kind of had quite a global reach in that respect. It was Copies were sent all over the world, and there are reviews of it from kind of Canada and Australia. Um, and it was rather different to the normal kind of history scenes that the Art Union used to kind of, used to select. So it bears an inscription from Leviticus from the Bible, light and darkness, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And it depicts a kind of a, a cosy domestic scene. So a family are gathered within a simple rural cottage. And most prominently, um, on the right-hand side, is seated a beautiful young blind girl. And a group of adults and children are gathered around her, kind of in varying states of listening or distraction. And she's reading aloud from an embossed book, so we can safely assume that it's a Bible. Um, it's resting upon her knees, and her hands are kind of poised um, in movement across the surface of the text. Two men, if we can make out on the left of the image, seem intent on leaving through an open door to something a little bit more fun that's going on outside. And just to say, more dramatically in a way than the, the actual painting, the, the print kind of emphasises um, this binary between good and bad and light and dark. So even though the girl is seated furthest away from the window, she's actually kind of radiating light. There's an absence of hatching on her figure, so she seems to actually be kind of the light source for the room. In a way, it kind of seems to be a standard Victorian morality tale of, you know, the kind of the word versus temptations of the world. But I think in its dramatisation of embossed reading, it also suggests to us the ideological work that public reading by the virtuous and moral blind might do. And perhaps it kind of confirms the sighted audience's satisfaction in this practice as well. 
Okay, so I'm going to shift gear slightly now by drawing your attention to the invention of an alphabet by a man called George Hughes. Um, and this marks an important turning point in our discussion today, as Hughes was himself blind and he used his own perceptual experience to inform his design principles. So Hughes had been a member of the establishment of the blind in London and he was critical of sighted people's refusal to accept that visually impaired students might be able to learn arbitrary scripts. So he argued in 1848 that if sighted people did not comprehend an arbitrary alphabet at a glance, they flatly condemn it at once. And the photograph that I've displayed here shows the frontispiece and the alphabetic code to his dotted puntiuncular system, um, which has quite a long title. Um, I, I won't read all of it out. Um, and this was also based um, on principles of shorthand, so it used contracted forms. What we might notice from looking at this and also from handling it in the... There's a, is that, in a way, there's a, a resemblance to, to Braille. Um, he uses dotted symbols, and they're also arranged in a cellular unit as well. And Braille had been invented around this time, but it's unlikely that it, it was probably an accidental kind of resemblance. But as Braille was criticised um, for its radical difference to the cited alphabet at this time in France, so too was Hughes criticised by other educators and inventors, and the system fell into obscurity. But I find Hughes's own commentary on printing for blind people compelling because he articulates the debates clearly in terms of a power dynamic by recognising that sighted educators may have suppressed development of arbitrary scripts because of, um, and I quote, a selfish feeling of not wishing the blind to have the power of writing in characters unknown to themselves. Hughes was not a lone voice. Rather, he was connected to a group of blind and partially sighted people who were becoming increasingly vocal about their frustration at the systems and tools in place for blind people, and who are deeply critical of some of the seemingly progressive advancements that were being made in their name. In their network nature, and their attempts to organise new social models, and their use of media outlets to argue their points, we can identify in these groups an early manifestation of a disability rights movement. And so this section of my talk now is going to introduce you to some of the leading figures who kind of were in this group, and I'm going to focus in particular um, on their campaigning around the issue of literacy, although just to say their agendas did stretch beyond this to pressing concerns about training, professions and employabilities available to blind people as well. So a significant con um, contributor to the cause of blind people's welfare in the Victorian area and, and actually a rare woman in this history was Elizabeth, known at the time as Bessie Gilbert. So Gilbert had lost her sight to scarlet fever in early childhood um, and this slide... Um, shows her um, depicted seated in an interior setting, studio setting, which has been decorated to resemble an outside scene, and she's wearing dark glasses. Gilbert used her own personal wealth to fund initiatives aimed at improving the employment opportunities for blind people. There had been a huge increase in the number of institutions and societies providing education and training for blind people, so the disability historian Martha Stoddard Holmes notes that the numbers kind of exploded from 4 to 154, um, between 1799 and 1899. But the situation was so variable as to be chaotic in many ways, and there was no official state funding for these initiatives either. So Gilbert had identified a further problem with the, the current, so the forms of state provision that were available, as relief laws acted on the principle that once a person had been trained for something, they didn't need retraining. But Gilbert kind of pointed out and, and stressed that actually many people had lost their sight later in life and so needed access to, um, to new training again to equip them going forward. 
And she argued that this rule was kind of forcing people um, towards begging. So Gilbert was recognised and, and celebrated for her solution to this. She established an innovative model of workshops which were run largely by blind people um, in the 1850s and which developed into the Association for Promoting the General Welfare of the Blind. The association attracted the support of many prominent people, including Queen Victoria, and it became one of the best-known blind agencies at the mid-19th century, teaching blind people literacy and also handicraft skills as well. So the group portrait that I'm showing now depicts some of the blind workers of Gilbert's workshop on the Euston Road in London. It was commissioned in 1858 and engraved and published along with an account of the workshop in the Illustrated London News in April of that year. So it depicts a scene of quiet industry. Two women and two men are seated round a desk making brushes and working a machine. Three men are seated at a floor in front of the table. Um, two are engaged in basket making and cane work and a third reads an embossed book. A man stands by the doorway laden with handcrafted items, suggesting that he's about to leave to sell some of the group's wares. Unlike the girl in George Smith's painting, this man reads his embossed book quietly and self-absorbedly. So we might see in a way that this image is an attempt to steer the representation of the blind person away from associations of poverty and beggary that have been promoted by people such as John Thomas Smith. Um, and even more recently, in the painting of a blind girl by the famous pre-Raphaelite art artist John Everett Millay from 1856. And so now I'm showing a different image of Gilbert, an engraving after a portrait by William Boxall that was published as a frontispiece to her biography in 1887. And her autograph is also reproduced underneath. So Gilbert recognised literacy as an important step towards blind people's self-sufficiency. She herself had extensive experience of different relief systems. As her educated parents, um, her father had been the principal of Brasenose College, Oxford, had early on in her childhood kept abreast of all the recent developments in embossed literature. And actually one of the stated objectives of the association was to promote reading by touch and to create a circulating library of relief print books. And Gilbert later argued that the education of the blind will receive an immense impulse when the improvement of which I believed embossed printing to be capable is effective. The blind have different wants in writing to those who see. Despite herself being trained in Roman capitals, Gilbert ultimately felt that an arbitrary script, Braille, was the best system to meet those different wants. So Gilbert adopted a slightly more moderate position in public manifestos than she did in some of her private correspondence, Perhaps because in her public role as a fundraiser for the association, she felt con constraints on what she could say. And I'll return a little bit to that um, when I talk about Levy. However, she was connected to a coterie of blind writers who mounted a radical critique um, of the institutional support for blind people at this time. And these included William Hanks Levy and John Bird, who I'm going to talk about um, in a bit more detail, as well as musician Alexander Mitchell, who set up a short-lived society for improving the condition of the blind in London, the poet Edmund White, um, and the teacher, interpreter, musician Hippolyte van Landen. Their writings um, frequently displayed anger at the way in which they felt they'd been treated as inferior by sighted people. And there really is often quite a kind of a biting edge to, to the tone of their treatises. Um, and interesting, I don't have a portrait of Levy or actually Bird. Um, I did do some research trying to find them when I was um, curating a a display at the National Portrait Gallery, but I didn't come across any. If people do know, I'd be really interested. But in a sense, I think it's kind of testimony to the fact that their status wasn't kind of held to be very high, that portraits aren't kind of readily available. So we'll talk now about William Hanks Levy, but there. So 
Levy is an important figure in this history. Despite his lack of wealth, Levy had risen to the position of teacher at the London Society for Teaching the Blind to Read, and he was selected by the Society to demonstrate his reading before Queen Victoria at the Great Exhibition, around the time he met Gilbert in the early 1850s. He became increasingly disillusioned with the ways in which sighted communities were exerting control over blind people, and after beginning correspondence with Gilbert, he helped her to set up the association, which initially, according to his wishes, employed only blind people. Um, And he also used to emboss bills and correspondence in a system that he'd invented himself. In theory, though, this wasn't practical for a sustained period, and sighted co-workers and ink print communication was um, introduced. The chastisement with which Levy was met by Gilbert's biographer Francis Martin in 1887 kind of gives us a bit of a clue, really, to the distaste with which polite sighted society might have held his perceived radicalism. Um, She described him as a negative influence on Gilbert, one with an extreme view, himself educated in an institution surrounded only by blind people, often of a very feeble capacity, who had learned to look upon himself more as a member of an oppressed and persecuted race than as an afflicted man. So quite a damning judgment by Gilbert's biographer. Levy published an impressive compendium on blindness in 1872, and this was co-researched with Gilbert, and it covered lots of subjects from causes of blindness to um, to, uh, education and training. And it also included a survey of printing for blind. Um, Although it was printed in ink print, the preface noted that it's been the author's constant practice over the past 25 years to make embossed notes of whatever appeared worthy of preservation, his motto being that a thought unrecorded was a thought lost. While stressing that the methods of printing and relief was one of the most valuable discoveries ever made, and given due to the cited directors who'd instigated these inventors, um, rather, Levy also critiqued the assumptions that had underpinned early developments. He insisted that the education of tactile techniques must be tailored according to the ability of the pupil, arguing against the belief that blind people possess equivalent compensatory powers of touch to vision. He insisted that there were three levels of touch in the blind pupils he taught, the keen touch, the medium touch, and the dull or obtuse touch. Now, for Levy, this naturally raised the question, well, could there be a system um, that could actually provide for three degrees? And whilst a select few people with a keen touch might be able to discern raised Roman letters, um, as Levy noted, he also argued that the books of the blind being printed so as to be read by the sighted is not of the slightest importance, for it must be admitted that whatever is intended to be perceived by a given sense should be suited to the peculiar requirements of that sense. And actually the failure to, to get this right Um, to associate clarity, for example, with sharp lines, could actually have some quite disturbing consequences, um, as Levy kind of tells us about his own experience of reading Frere type, which produced a stinging sensation in the point of the finger, which gradually extends itself up the hand until it reaches the wrist. And he also gives a report of how children who were learning to read Boston line type, which was the leading American system and also based on the Roman alphabet, had been known to read until their fingers bled. So, kind of rather grisly outcome of some of these these arguments. Okay, so I want to say a little bit about another man who in- really interests me, um, a man called John Bird, who'd acted as Gilbert's tutor and who was an active campaigner for better rights and treatment of blind people. He kind of passionately called for an ed- end to segregated schooling. And Bird, like Levy, had been deeply critical about some of the early embossed writing systems, saying that they were utterly inappropriate and impractical for most blind people to easily learn and use. So he wrote scathingly 
The more intelligent blind who have to struggle for mental health and to avert social degradation soon discover how little can possibly be gained during the rest of their lives from relief type and therefore give it up and lay it aside altogether, regarding it only as one of the inventions to be kept alive in its present state, as the germ of a brighter future which they will not live to see. His frustration at the antagonism of the sighted partisans of different types led him to reject the prospect of tactile literature altogether and advocate instead for the ear instead of the finger as an instrument of reading. And crucially, like Levy, he also advocated for greater self-determination by blind people over matters of education and literacy, arguing that, as the sighted have all their own way in society, on the platform and in their printed reports, it's very seldom that the voice of the independent blind is ever heard. And whilst Bird was criticised, um, like Levy, in his own day for failing to play the role of a grateful blind person, this seemingly radical view became, as we'll learn, a bit more of the norm in the last part of the century. So just to say that George Hughes, William Hanks Levy and John Bird, in a way, they all articulated something approaching the social model of disability that theorists have outlined more recently in the 20th century. That is, their disability and disadvantages as blind people, they felt, were produced not actually by their visual impairment, but actually by the prejudiced attitudes of society. Um, and that's kind of a, a key point, really, I think, in these debates. And it was the issue of finger reading that really kind of cohered and dramatised um, some of this, um, these prejudices. So critiques about the, the state of blind education were mounting by the 1860s. And there was clear recognition of the need for universal script to improve teaching methods. So by the time of the Royal Commission in the 1880s, it was estimated, it's really difficult to know actually how many blind people were actually reading, but it's been estimated about one in two had kind of experience or some kind of practical um, ability to use a relief system. And the, the, the failure to have a universal script was keeping printing costs really high. It was preventing the ability to build up better libraries. And it was also kind of impeding teaching methods. So in um, 1862, uh, around the same time an international conference was held on blindness in France, John Bird called for a gathering together of educated blind people to research the issues a bit more thoroughly. And in the late 1860s, such a group was formed with the guided motto that the relative merits of the various methods of education through the sense of touch should be decided by those and only by those who have to rely upon this sense. So this committee, the British and Foreign Society for Improving the Embossed Literature of the Blind, which was later the British and Foreign Blind Association, the BFBA, was one of the first officially organised movements for blind people in Britain. Um, and they announced their activities in an article published in Dickens's later journal All the Year Round in 1870. And this piece, and I've got a quote here on the, on the PowerPoint, it proves quite a kind of a, a, a very strong counterpoint to to the arguments or the viewpoints I quoted earlier by Harriet Martineau and others who had insisted on the need for blind people to conform to sighted people's reading practices. So the author of this article, titled Blind Leaders of the Blind, criticises the fact that Britain's lagging behind Europe and stresses the need that blind people need to take control over tactile literacy. So in this very kind of widely read forum, the author strongly presses that decisions about embossed literature need to be made by blind people. So... For the blind to lead the blind has hitherto been considered unwise policy, but it is likely to prove the reverse in these material points. For a council has been formed, the members of which are either nearly totally blind or so nearly so as to make it necessary for them to use the finger. So the head of this committee um, was Thomas Rhodes Armitage, who trained as a doctor before retiring in his 30s due to his failing sight. 
And after becoming involved with blind societies such as the Indigent Blind Visiting Society, he too became deeply critical of the situation of blind people's education. Um, And he was also connected to Bessie Gilbert as the two of them contributed to a later report on blind education and training in 1876. But the issue that first focused his attention was the utter confusion of finger reading produced by, as he called it, a babel of different systems. So he recruited a number of other blind acquaintances, including James Gale, William Fenn and Daniel Connolly, and they proceeded to systematically research all the different race scripts that were um, circulating, calling upon a a number of other blind readers to assist. Armitage published the group's finding in his 1871 The Education and Employment of the Blind, and whilst this report acknowledged the particular strengths of two systems, moon type and braille, they ultimately endorsed braille. And I'm just going to quickly just kind of talk a bit about these scripts. So some of you might have heard of the race script um, moon type. It was invented in 1840 by William Moon, who's pictured here, who lost his sight around, eight, around that time. Sorry, he lost his sight around 1840. And after trying to learn various different systems um, and not getting on very well with them, he invented, he kind of hit upon a unique selling point that if he actually adapted the Roman alphabet and took away certain kind of curves and symbols and reduced it down to, um, I think that there are nine symbols that are kind of repeated, that this would be easier for people who'd lost their sight to kind of get to grips with. And Moontype really kind of had, he was a very active and ardent promoter of his system. He had quite a lot of kind of money and and finances um, behind him. He was associated with societies in Brighton, and he also kind of had a global reach uh, or ambition for his system. So in the his memoir from 1873, he talks about how it's been translated into over 80 languages by, by the 1870s. Um, but one of the failures of, of Moontype was, its, um, was that he hadn't been able to engineer a cheap and effective means of allowing people to actually write Moon themselves. And one of the advantages of Braille, along with the ease with which it lent itself to musical notation, um, was, as Armitage noted, the extreme facility with which it's written as well as read. And I've actually brought along um, Armitage's Braille writing frame, which is um, again in the RNIB's collection, which kind of really illustrates this point kind of very well. So at the beginning of my talk, I mentioned that embossing on paper had been developed in Paris by a man named Valentin Aoi, and he'd also founded the Institute for Blind Youth. This school was to be an important centre for blind people's education, notably through the activities of one of its young students and later teacher, Louis Braille. So experiencing the same set of difficulties of reading Aoi's embossed visual alphabet, Braille set about, um, Braille set about experimenting. He converted an early military code of night writing into a raised alphabetic system, and it consisted of cells of six dots um, in which six dots were variously arranged. And the system that he developed allowed for logographs, so single characters that represent whole words, and contracted forms. So he'd spent many years trying to develop this system, but he died two years before it was actually adopted as the official script of the school in um, 1854. And at this point, although it had been exhibited at the Great Exhibition in 1851, it wasn't really used in Britain because there was still an anxiety that it was so kind of radical and different and so so difficult to read by the eye. So it really hadn't been used very much at all by the time that Armitage and his colleagues developed their re- began their researches in the 1860s. But Armitage and his colleagues did become passionate advocates of Braille and they used it for their own public and private correspondence. Um, and the RNIB um, archives have got countless journals of, of Armitage that are, are, are printed in Braille. 
And they also campaigned extensively at home and abroad for its adoption. And they, as many of the blind people that I've mentioned here today, travelled extensively across Britain and Europe, sharing their researches and speaking at international conferences. And by 1883, um, some 27 British institutions were using the system for reading, writing and musical notation. Um, and when the National Library for the Blind was established in 1882, it also primarily printed materials in Braille, although Moontype did continue to enjoy success into the 20th century. I want to kind of wrap, wrap up here at the point at which Universal Script was well on its way towards being established. I want to stress that Although there are clearly connected movements in this history, there was still internal disagreement amongst blind spokespeople about the best direction education should take. But I think what I really want to, to highlight um, and draw out is that um, the campaigning activities of these individuals who I've mentioned um, kind of all impressed that actually policies and practices concerning blind and partially sighted people should be developed, not just in consultation with them, but actually they should lead the consultation. Um, so that's kind of really, I think, one of the, the key points. And just to throw out a question in, in my conclusion, one of the things that kind of motivates me in my research is also to think about what the experience of kind of more ordinary blind men and women trying to use these systems was and how we might be able to kind of recover some of their experiences. So did they enjoy it? Um, did they find it useful? Were they bored, as Edmund Johnson had feared, that all they had was two or three spiritual books? Um, did they take pleasure in, the, in their new skills? So one of our, the problems of researching this, this area is that actually often it's difficult to recover these types of um, histories and testimonies. And the two images I'm going to show suggest to me a couple of ways that we might do this. So this is a photograph of a man, unidentified man, reading an embossed book, sat over a desk. He looks very studious. And it's a carte de visite photograph, so something which was meant to be sent out and shared with, with people. Um, so there's a sense of kind of proud display at this man's skills or perhaps the system that he's, he's using. And then finally, this um, little amber-type photograph, which has been blown up much bigger than its actual size, um, of a lady called Anne Whiting, or the back's inscribed Anne Whiting. Um, it's a lady of about 50 who sat reading a, a book on her lap and the inscription on the back reads that she's nurse and friend. So we presume that this is perhaps sent out, this was made to be sent to a friend and perhaps to kind of signal her enjoyment or pleasure of this, of this new skill. And just to kind of to, to conclude, I think for me these objects and items, and along with the, the material um, that I brought along today, kind of really, um, I think, shows the importance of material culture and archival research um, in helping to reconstitute some of these otherwise forgotten experiences and lives. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.